Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In 2006, Lamont Hunter lived with his girlfriend, Lizmilda, along with their blended family in Cincinnati, Ohio. Luzmilda's three-year-old son, Trustin, had been previously hospitalized for what was believed to be injuries resulting from child abuse. However, no charges ever materialized. Then, on January 19, 2006, Trustin was in Lamont's care when paramedics were called to take Trustin again to the hospital, where he passed away. Lamont told police that Trustin took a tumble down the stairs, but the state's experts believed that the medical evidence told a different story, that Trustin's injuries could not have resulted from a fall down the stairs, but rather from violent shaking coupled with forceful impact. In addition, that the three-year-old boy may have been sexually assaulted. With evidence like this, it didn't take long for a three-judge panel to sentence Lamont Hunter to death. But this is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we have a story of a crime that never happened that resulted in a death sentence for a man who should have been given time to grieve. Lamont Hunter was sentenced to death in the state of Ohio for a crime that never happened. And here to help him tell his story, I'm going to introduce, I actually asked how she would like to be introduced, and Lamont jumped right in and said, just call her the amazing Erin Barnhart. But for context, (laughs) she is assistant public defender at the Southern Ohio Federal Public Defender Capital Habeas Unit. So Erin, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And here to tell his own story with an assist from Erin and myself is... The man himself who survived this incredible ordeal, Lamont Hunter. Lamont, I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's kind of a miracle that you're here. And, uh, you know, and Aaron, you are a big part of that miracle. So let's go back to your 
upbringing, the place that you were born and where you lived has a lot to do with your wrongful conviction. But did you actually grow up there in Hamilton County, Ohio? Cincinnati. Yes, I did. Hamilton County. I was born in the late 60s, so I grew up through the 70s and 80s and 90s. My mother, my father, my heroes worked their fingers to the bone to provide a good life for me and my siblings. My childhood was amazing. Like I always say, I was fortunate to be born in the family that I was born into. I mean, cousins, aunts, uncles. We are all very close-knit family, you know. I understand eventually you became a father as well. Absolutely. I got four biological children and two children that I raised, and I have an honorary daughter, Aisha. What are the kids' names? Ashley, Mariah, Lamont, Jr., Valida, Eric, Aisha, and Trinity. I've been instrumental and very hands-on in raising all my children, all six of them. To support his family, Lamont worked as a roofer, but also he had a side hustle, sending drugs through Federal Express, which landed him in federal prison. Now, drug trafficking is in no way related to how Lamont ended up on Ohio's death row, but his prior conviction comes up later in the story. So after his stint in prison, he went back to roofing and met a woman named Lizmilda, and together they had Lamont's youngest child, Trinity. Lizmilda also had three boys from a previous relationship, Tyree, Tyrell, and Trustin. So Lamont actually didn't spend much time with Trustin, the little boy who died in this case. Trustin was Lizmilda's son, and because of complications with her health when he was born, he was basically raised by other people, family, friends, and relatives. Right. Wilma Forte and Amber White? Yes. Um, after she delivered Trustin, she had kidney stones, so she had to immediately go back in for kidney surgery, and she couldn't care for Trustin. So they were loving enough to take Trustin. And for some reason, I don't agree with Lizmilda on this, she just chose to let him stay there. That's where Trustin lived. Now, Lizmilda Lamont rarely took care of Trustin, and prior to the 2006 incident that resulted in Trustin's death, there had been some suspected abuse back in 2004. In January of 2004, Lamont had been carrying Trustin up a flight of stairs and tripped and fell on Trustin and ended up breaking his leg bone, his tibia. At the time, his two older half-siblings were there, saw what happened, it's obviously an accident. No one even suspected it wasn't an accident. He was treated and let go. Then in June of 2004, Trustin had sort of a constellation of injuries, some swelling, scratches, rashes, some other abrasions like by his lips and his ears. When Luzmilda goes to change Trustin's diaper, she sees that it's really raw and red and irritated. Luzmilda wondered if his genital swelling was a bug bite or diaper rash. So she takes him to a local urgent care when they see these conditions, they end up sending him to the hospital, and it's treated as a case of abuse. Now, I don't think we'll ever know what happened to Trustin. I think it's probably a combination of things. We found in medical records that Trustin had a lot of skin conditions, eczema, other sort of conditions where his hair was falling out, environmental stressors and things like that. And then he was playing with two older, rambunctious kids. Mm -hmm. And I think probably what happened was there was some combination of maybe a little roughhousing, maybe some irritation that Trustin himself could have scratched or irritated that resulted in these conditions. No matter what happened, everyone agrees 
Lamont wasn't involved, but these circumstances were treated as abuse. And at the hospital, when they did a skeletal survey, an x-ray, they discovered that Trustin had a number of older healing fractures in his hands and feet. Now, Trustin was hardly ever taken care of by his mother and therefore Lamont. So at the time that these injuries would have been dated when he sustained them, Trustin was not around either Lamont or his mother. He was in the care of of other people. So He lived with them. Right. So even if these older injuries were the result of abuse, it was not from Lamont or his mother. No one was charged in this 2004 incident, but Child Protective Services were made aware. And even though Lamont was never even considered a suspect in 2004, the Hamilton County prosecutors raised the specter of ongoing abuse while seeking the death penalty for Lamont in 2006. The Death Penalty Information Center has a report called the 2% Report. If you look statistically, Hamilton County and Cuyahoga County in Ohio, Cleveland and Cincinnati, are part of the 2% of counties in the entire nation that account for more than half of people on death row and more than half of people who have been executed in this country. We've covered a lot of Ohio wrongful convictions, too many to list, but we're going to link Elwood Jones and Keith Lamar. Both death penalty cases handled by Hamilton County prosecutors in which they hid or ignored exculpatory evidence at trial. And Lamont's story is no different. So let's get to that. On January 19, 2006, tragedy struck when Trustin was staying with Lizmilda and Lamont. Lizmilda, well, she get up and go to work. And about an hour or two later, I get the boys up to get ready for school themselves. So I get Jordan and Tyree out the door on their way to school. And now I got Trustin and Trinity and I get Trustin situated for breakfast in our living room. I made him French toast sticks and little sausage links. He wanted to watch the new Jurassic Park movie. So sat him in a chair, put it on for him and decided to start my daily chores. I grabbed Trinity, my nine-month-old, and I went downstairs in the basement to finish doing the laundry. That's when I first heard him running across the floor above me. Next thing I hear, he's coming, tumbling down the stairs and uh, hit his head. So I immediately run over. His head was back and his eyes were fluttering. Now I'm, I'm scared. I just scooped him up and run up the stairs. So I figure I'd throw some water on his face to try to jug him awake. And his eyes were still fluttering. So I seen that he was struggling to take a breath. I don't know how to do CPR, but I attempted it. So I had to open his mouth. I noticed a piece of sausage lodged in the back of his mouth, blocking his airway. So I I got that out with my finger. I held his nose and I blew in his mouth like I see people do on TV. I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'm not certified or nothing. So I probably blew too much in his mouth because his stomach was getting bloated. I got scared. So I called his mother and she immediately came home. They made a big deal of this, by the way, at my trial that I didn't immediately call the paramedics instead calling his mother. They thought it was something nefarious, but it wasn't. It was just I panicked. And so paramedics got there very quick and started tending to him. I was just a mess. The dog is running around barking. Absolutely. I could never prove this. But I know my dog, when I left the room, tried to take his food from him while he was sitting in that chair. I believe that's what prompted Trustin to run across that floor. And that might explain why he ended up with a piece of food lodged in his throat. Absolutely. The sausage. And I know my dog was harassing him for it. But they get Trustin in the ambulance, and Lizmilda gets in the ambulance with him, and me and Trinity, we followed them to the emergency room at Children's. That's how my day started, January 19th, 2006.
Trustin had head injuries that were fatal. He had blood trapped between the layers of his brain, which they call subdural hematoma. And then his brain also swelled, which is what happens anytime there's any sort of injury or trauma to the brain. They call it cerebral edema. And anytime your brain swells, that also puts pressure on your optic nerve and results in retinal hemorrhages, so bleeding on the back of your eye. And by now, our listeners are familiar with these findings as what are commonly associated with the grotesque junk science prosecution theory known as shaken baby syndrome. We're going to have our shaken baby syndrome episode of wrongful conviction junk science linked as well. For years, the theory was widely accepted across the medical establishment that the presentation of these three things could mean only one thing, that the infant or toddler had been shaken to death by their most recent caretaker, denying any other potential or even probable causes. But over time, this theory has gradually fallen apart. And this field has been very nimble because anytime someone shows, well, guess what? This person, we know it was an accident and they show these injuries. And then they say like, oh, okay. We're first of all, we're not going to call it shaking baby because they did experiments. They had big beefy football players shake a crash test dummy baby, and they could not generate the type of force needed to cause the brain injuries without breaking the child's neck. And so they said, okay, so maybe shaking alone can't cause it. So shaking with impact, that's what we'll say, shaking with impact. So we won't call it shaking, baby, we'll call it abusive head trauma. And they just keep morphing and adapting to whatever fits. No matter what has been revealed through biomechanical studies and a confluence of medical histories that prove that in addition to accidental causes like a fall down the stairs, there are 81 pre-existing medical conditions and counting that can cause the presentation of those findings. And yet there are still proponents of this theory that refuse to admit that limiting the cause to shaking alone is an unscientific leap in logic. And so, in 2006, even though some of the medical establishment had begun to realize the problem with this theory, including the neuroscientists who had developed it, the state's witnesses attributed Trustin's triad of findings to shaking and any other injuries, including a sheared vertebrae and what appeared to be an impact injury to further violence. Lamont was arrested on January 22, 2006, three days after Trustin's death, and he was taken to trial in June 2007. The prosecutor, through their child abuse pediatrician witnesses, said these kinds of injuries could not have come from a fall down the stairs. It had to have been abuse. You know, we only see these kinds of injuries from forces like in a car accident or maybe Lamont swung Trustin around like a baseball like a bat. Baseball. <laughs> you know, that that's what have caused it, but not from falling down the stairs. And then in addition, Trustin had some injuries in his anal rectal area. He had three puncture wounds in his rectal mucosa. So kind of up in his rectum, there were three wounds. I think they were about two millimeters in diameter. And then kind of on the outside lip of his anus, it's not entirely clear if it's a tear or a cut. It wasn't that accurately described. And so those injuries were used to support a charge of rape. As we'll explain later, there was a completely innocent explanation for those anal and rectal injuries, yet the child abuse pediatrician painted a completely different picture. The child abuse pediatrician did say that the injuries were consistent 
with an adult penis. Now that's the magic word, right? Consistent, which I think mm-hmm. a lot of fact finders hear and think that means a match, but it mm-hmm. doesn't at all. It just means we can't exclude it as the cause. I mean, what adult penis is two millimeters in diameter? So Makarov is only talking about the external like injury kind of along the edge of the anus. She never saw the internal injuries, the puncture wounds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So the child abuse pediatrician did not have a full understanding of the injuries, which may explain why the coroner, Dr. Gretel Stevens, drew different conclusions. What the coroner said was that it looked like the interior wounds were like poked with something sharp, like maybe a pencil. And the prosecutors argued at trial that this wasn't penile rape, but this was rape with some sort of object. While that explanation is still incorrect, at least Dr. Stevens' assumptions were more grounded in reality. However, the investigation failed to find any such object or any efforts to cover up that kind of crime. Dr. Stevens also acknowledged the evolving science on shaken baby syndrome, saying that a rotational fall would be consistent with the shearing of the neck that Trustin experienced and that stair falls are responsible for the kinds of findings that were present in Trustin's situation. And that's the thing, like Dr. Stevens pretty much was a straight shooter at trial And it was just the fact that she hadn't seen the photographs of the actual staircase to know that there was a ledge abutting one side of the stairs that kind of matched up with some injuries that she saw. There was also a throw rug. If he had slipped on that, may have contributed. She didn't know that Lamont had reported hearing trusted running. In addition, the coroner was unaware of the innocent explanation for these anal and rectal injuries. So since neither one of the state's experts had a full picture of the incident, This, along with Lamont's ineffective counsel, allowed the state's erroneous narrative to take hold. Lamont's trial counsel, Clyde Bennett is the attorney's name, is not a bad criminal defense attorney. He's actually pretty well known as a good criminal defense attorney. But there are a couple things that just weren't going to work in Lamont's case. Number one, a death penalty case is different. A dead kid is different. And you can't just kind of rely on your old tricks and techniques in this kind of case. Number two, this is a case where the evidence is all based on medical expert testimony. Yes. The evidence is the state expert coming in and saying you can only get these injuries from abuse, period. And his trial counsel did not hire an expert not only not to testify or just even to consult with an expert, to explain the medical records to him, to explain the flaws in the state expert's testimony and reasoning. He said he thought that he could just rely on (laughs) cross-examination. And his theory was that this child abuse pediatrician, she's not qualified to be talking about retinal hemorrhages. She's not an ophthalmologist. She's not qualified to be talking about the mechanism of injury. She doesn't have a degree in biomechanics or anything. Now, this is all true. The problem was when he made that objection, (laughs) the court overruled it and he had no plan B. (laughs) So when that didn't work... He was left to just kind of on his own try to cross-examine, and he knew enough to be dangerous. And so he's (laughs) asking questions about stuff that's not relevant. Like he's trying to say, isn't it true that you could have a delayed 
onset of injury. And that is true sometimes, except for that's not what happened in Treston's case. We know what happened. He fell down the stairs and was immediately unresponsive. So that line of questioning was completely irrelevant. Also, he didn't hire an expert to look through the medical records, and he didn't look through the records himself. I mean, Lamont would have been better off with his original court-appointed attorney. Not, I mean, much better off, because it turns out that Mr. Bennett was more than a little bit distracted at the time. That's true. He was a little distracted with his own legal troubles. Mr. Bennett himself was being investigated for some pretty serious federal crimes. And in fact, shortly after Lamont was sentenced to death, he signed his own plea agreement and turned himself into federal custody and went away to federal prison. He pled to structured deposits, so depositing money just under the reporting limit. Unbeknownst to Lamont, Clyde Bennett was connected to a major drug dealer out of Dayton, Ohio, both of whom were subjects of a federal investigation that ended in cooperation and a plea deal for Clyde. Meanwhile, in Lamont's trial, Clyde neglected to prepare the vital medical expert testimony as well as advised Lamont to take a bench trial in front of a three-judge panel, reasoning that a jury might be susceptible to the emotions surrounding a dead child. Turns out so are three-judge panels. Exactly. Especially when we know for sure that this judge, who's now passed on, Norbert Nadel, told Clyde Bennett in his chambers it wouldn't be wise for him to bring me in front of him on a bench trial because I lose. And he still advised me not to have a jury. Now, the advantage of not having a jury is that you can save a lot of time because you don't have to go through voir dire and get a death-qualified jury. So, you know, Clyde took a flat fee from Lamont's family, so it's just economical to make the trial go as fast as possible. And so a great way to cut down on time is to waive jury. It sounds to me like the judge actually was telling him, if you do this, you're going to lose. And he was like, great. <laughs> I mean, I mean like, I, I'm glad you're laughing, you know, Lamont, because, I, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm laughing to keep from crying, but you lived through this. That's I mean, what I, I'm doing. I've been doing it for 17 years. Oh, my God. I've been laughing to keep from crying, man. I, it's just so much trauma on this journey, man. It's just a lot of trauma. So this bench trial played out exactly as this judge told Lamont's attorney it would. It was pretty easy for them to convict because... All of the state's expert testimony was entirely unrebutted. So they have these experts from the state saying this had to be abuse. There is no way this could have come from a fall down the stairs. And then on top of that, they had the state saying, and look at all this other suspicious stuff, injuries in his anal rectal area, these injuries in the past when Lamont was around Truston. After conviction, Clyde Bennett pops up in the jail on a Sunday and I'm pissed at this point. I'm like, what are you doing here? And he, he just said, man, you know, I just wanted to come and ask you how are federal prisons? How are they ran? What it's like in federal prison? I'm looking at him like, what does that have to do with my case? He said, well, he's, well, I know you've been in federal prison before and I'm going there. I'm fighting for my own life, Lamont. So um, I just want to know how these federal prisons. I walked off on him and went back to my cell, man. I was done with him at the time. So all hope was lost at that point. <laughs> I was convicted. And then mitigation, where you have to get the most closest loving person in your life. They had to literally beg the courts to save my life. It was humiliating for me and my family. 
and it didn't work. <laughs> so they were dug in. So I still got sentenced to death. And my father, who I have a lot of love and respect for, he's actually my hero. I, after getting on the stand and testifying and asking the courts to save my life and telling the story that he did about me and, and growing up with my siblings, he had a heart attack right there in the courtroom. He had a heart attack right there in the courtroom. Right in the courtroom. Ambulance was called. They saved his life. There, but he's, he had a heart attack right in the courtroom. That never got talked about in the media or not like that. They was too busy calling me a monster and a child rapist. And my father, he's no longer with us. He died in 2018 before I got home. But from that day, his health just declined. Sentenced to death, isolated, away from general population. There's no programming set up for us back there. It's just mundane and waking up every day, knowing that your name is on a list to be executed. The state of Ohio intends on executing you. And that's like having a gorilla constantly on your shoulders, weighing you down. And this is it. From far as you can see, is is it. Every day is like the same day. The first year I was there, I was still in the haze. I didn't know what to expect as far as the courts. I've never appealed a sentence before. So I was, of course, jaded and kind of paranoid of my attorneys after coming through the horror show of the trial that I went through and being served up by my trial attorney. Like, well, what's going to happen at this phase? Although Lamont had pretty capable post-conviction attorneys from the Ohio Public Defender's Office, Unfortunately, they couldn't get any traction in state court, which is not uncommon. But their claims that they raised were not that different than what we raised in our federal habeas petition. The problem is they didn't have access to the evidence they needed. They asked for discovery to get the medical records to depose the coroner, just like we did, and it was all denied. As we've mentioned, at trial, both states' experts, Makarov and Stevens, had been operating with incomplete understandings of the incident. Additionally, Makarov had ignored the evolving science on SBS, which continued through post-conviction, even as the science continued to evolve further and further away from her position. Dr. Makarov, she's doubling down on everything, as everyone in her sort of little industry has to do. This is what makes this field so dangerous and unscientific is the feedback loop that exists. During our deposition, Dr. Makaroff cited an article about stair falls saying, look, we know stair falls aren't fatal because we drew all this data from different hospitals. All these kids come in after falling down the stairs and they didn't die. And I said, okay. I said, would Trustin's case be included in that data set? And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, is his case classified as a stair fall? Because you guys don't believe Mr. Hunter, that he fell down the stairs, right? And she was like, oh, that's a good point. They're self-selecting <laughs> the data right. that they're using to draw the conclusions that they use to exclude the data that they don't want. And then they say that, you know, these are so rare. And I agree. You know, most kids who tumble down the stairs don't die from it. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible, which is what they say to put people on death row. And just because something is rare doesn't mean that they know which is the rare case and which isn't. So there's all this bad science that goes into it. 
the thing that actually is scientific about this would be biomechanics, right? Force. (laughs) Child abuse pediatricians don't think biomechanics have any place in their world. And when Dr. Makaroff, she says, I didn't say Lamont abused Trustin. I just said that his report does not match the mechanism of injury. And I said, (laughs) well, when you're talking about the mechanism of injury, that kind of sounds like force, right? Oh, no, I'm not a physicist. Biomechanics doesn't fit there or whatever. I don't know how... Right. I don't know how you can talk about a mechanism without using biomechanics. Anyway... We did hire a biomechanical engineer and we went to the site and he took measurements of the stairs and the elasticity of the surface. And he used a computer program and he put in the height that Trustin was and his weight and the average that a child his age could run and trajectory, you know, ran through all these different scenarios of how he could have fallen and showed that like the forces generated were well within the range that have been shown to be enough to generate the kind of injuries that he had. So absolutely, stair falls can cause this. And also now with cell phones and security cameras, like people have started capturing injuries that otherwise would have been indicted as abuse if we didn't have proof that it was actually accidental. And Dr. Makaroff claims that even that could be doctored. <laughs> even that could be doctored. She maybe would have to see it with her own eyes to be convinced. And so, you know, there's just no pleasing the child abuse pediatricians. However, the defense was able to please the coroner, Dr. Stevens, when they provided a fuller picture of the incident, including photographs of the staircase, a biomechanical expert, and finally, the innocent explanation for the anal and rectal injuries that were available to prosecutors, the state's experts, and even Lamont's attorney at the trial. Had he even bothered to look? He would have found, like our investigator, Pam Swanson, did when we took over the case, notations in the medical records that staff at the hospital in the PICU had attempted to take Trustin's temperature three times with a rectal thermometer, had been unsuccessful, and immediately after that had noted blood in his rectum, which of course perfectly matches up with the three puncture wounds that the coroner identified and said could have been caused by something sharp like a pencil. And in fact, in another piece of undisclosed evidence, the coroner even told detectives that she couldn't rule out a temperature probe as the cause of this. Now, nobody turned that over to Lamont at trial, and the prosecutor didn't ask the coroner that question, but he did ask the child abuse pediatrician at trial if Trustin's injuries could have been caused by a thermometer, and she said no. When we deposed the coroner and showed her these records, She immediately changed her opinion on the cause of those injuries. She still said it was non-accidental, but it was inflicted medically, not as an assault. For me, I saw that and felt like I was just shouting into the void for years after that. (laughs) Nobody seemed to care about it until the coroner did. But I was like, people, this is it. This explains everything. Because that was a huge void in my defense. Yeah, it was a huge gap that nobody could explain. I never could explain the rape. To the time we found that, in the record, I could not explain the rape. I didn't rape him, so. Right. These idiots couldn't even figure out the three pokes with the thermometer yeah. were what caused what otherwise sounded like an awful thing that was done to this child, right? Well, yeah, that's the really troubling thing, is that I think nobody looked at these records, including Dr. Stevens. You know, at the time, had she, she would have learned things about the scene that would have explained the mechanism of injury. 
um, plus the findings about the anal and rectal injuries. And so then, like she did at her deposition when we showed them to her, she would have changed her opinion not only about the injuries that supported the rape, but also about the cause of death, that it was not a homicide. And his trial attorney is just as much to blame. So in addition to the Brady violations, this was also a clear case of ineffective assistance of counsel as well. When we went back to our judge in federal court, Judge Michael Watson, with the deposition testimony from Clyde, he kind of, in his opinion, went through all the things he didn't do, you know, didn't hire experts, didn't talk to witnesses, didn't look at the records, blah, blah, blah. And then the way he put it was he appeared to settle on his strategy of not using an expert not as a result of a strategic investigation, but rather in lieu of one, (laughs) which is kind of the classic definition of being an ineffective lawyer. You know, like all these people participate in a process that could result in a man's execution and that there's so little, you know, I mean, plenty of time. I think there's outright misconduct and malicious intent. And I think there's some of that here with the Brady evidence, the withheld evidence that we saw. But a lot of Other is, I think, just incompetence, a lack of thoroughness. I don't know. That might even be worse (laughs) because, you know, you care so little about being careful. A case that's with such magnitude as a person's life. Right. With proceedings so fraught with constitutional violations and convincing evidence of innocence, the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office joined Lamont's motion for a new trial in April 2023. But this didn't mean that they were finally seeking justice for Lamont. After Lamont had a new trial and we were trying to get him out on bond, the prosecutor's office ran to the coroner's office and got the other pathologists in the office to issue this addendum to the original autopsy report that basically just says, like, we think the coroner was wrong to change her opinion under oath in the deposition. We do think that this should still be a homicide and still be a rape with zero explanation. And then those pathologists refused to talk to us without the prosecutors being present. It just became so obvious to us that I I believe the Hamilton County Coroner's Office, they're supposed to be neutral experts guided by science, considers itself an arm of the prosecutor's office. So while Lamont was still trying to get out on bond in the lead up to his new trial, the prosecutor's office began to apply pressure. And here comes the plea offer. Basically, Lamont had this pressure of stay here in jail for at least another year or take a plea and get out. Time served, Lamont could walk out the door. Well, we decided to fight it and ask for bond. And the prosecutors fought dirty. (laughs) Basically had to go through a little mini trial where they're allowed to summarize their case by presenting evidence, including evidence that wasn't even presented at trial the first time. So stuff that isn't tested in any way, but just allegations, we were able to beat them there. The judge ruled that they hadn't met their burden to keep him locked up. But then the bond was $500,000, which he would have need to get $50,000 together cash to meet. Which would have been very hard. Which we couldn't do. I mean, so that was one problem. And then the other problem was the prosecutor convinced the judge to order no contact for Lamont with anyone under 18. So that meant all of his nine grandchildren, eight at the time. One on the way, yeah. Okay. 
he wouldn't be able to meet them. My children was in the courtroom when they asked for that. And just seeing them cry, man, and they want me to meet their kids so bad. And I want to meet my grandchildren so bad. They right there. That's when, you know, the decision was firmly made that I'm taking this plea agreement. It sounds like the prosecutor, Seth Teeger, was just trying to have it both ways. You're saying that he's so dangerous and such a monster that you don't think he should be let out at all. But you've offered him a plea. And if he agrees to that, he walks out of the door today with no conditions at all. No conditions, no Which is what he ended up doing. Lamont took the plea for time served, which also meant that he was not eligible for state compensation. Regardless... He was finally free after 16 long years on June 15th, 2023. One of the best days of my life. Mine too. On Erin's birthday, by the way. And ironically, I was convicted on her birthday as well. 16 years earlier, Erin had already told me, it's a bank of cameras and reporters out there, so be prepared when you walk through the door. One of the questions was, how are you feeling? getting your freedom back. And my answer then and today is still the same. Imagine feeling all of the emotions, anger, stress, joy, relief, frustration, all of those emotions at the same time. I'm still going through it, trying to figure it out, man. It's been amazing, though. And I actually got a a good start on everything, too. Um, Got my driver's license. My cousin gave me a vehicle. I got a job rather quickly. It took a little longer for me to get an apartment. I have to go in for a full knee replacement surgery because arthritis doesn't set in on it bone on bone. So I, I haven't been able to work. And that is frustrating. So I'm just trying to figure things out. Aaron set up a GoFundMe page that's been helping a little bit. Well, we're hoping our audience can help out a whole bunch more, and who knows how long it's going to be till Lamont is on his feet again. So if you have, you know, a few bucks, a few thousand bucks, a few million bucks laying around, whatever you can spare, and you want to help this man who has already been through so much, we're going to have the GoFundMe linked in the episode description, along with Lamont's LinkedIn page. He's begun public speaking, and he's a great speaker. So if anyone's interested, I'm sure he'd be very happy to have work that's not as physically demanding as the job he was able to find before the surgery. And with that, we're going to go to closing arguments, where first of all, I want to thank Aaron and Lamont, both of you, so much for joining us today. And now I'm just going to do what I do best. I'm going to kick back in my chair, turn off my microphone, leave my headphones on, close my eyes, and just listen to anything you feel is left to be said. So let's start with you, Aaron, and then just hand the mic off to Lamont. And Lamont, you take us out into the sunset. Nothing like this happens without the help of a village. And that's certainly true in Lamont's case. In our office, attorneys Tia Saplizio and Justin Thompson were also on Lamont's team. We mentioned Pam Swanson. She's retired now, but she's the investigator that kicked things off. And then our paralegal extraordinaire, Shannon Flammer. Oh, my God, yes. Who runs the office (laughs) and is really the backbone of everything. was absolutely wonderful. But I honestly don't know if there's a single person in the Capitol Habeas Unit who didn't help in some way with Lamont's case. And that includes a lot of our law student externs who helped us with research and writing, people help with site checking, just brainstorming, figuring out how to approach this crazy developments in the case, especially when the Supreme Court is changing the law on (laughs) what we're allowed to present in state court and federal court, you know, as it's going on, you know, and then he had post-conviction attorneys, Melissa Jackson and Kim Rigby at the Ohio Public Defender's Office, who 
fought valiantly and kept hitting a brick wall, but stayed supportive of Lamont. And then we are just so grateful for Al Gerhardstein, who's been so supportive and brought on some amazing attorneys to help us in state court. Sarah Gelsonino and Elizabeth Bonham and Marcus Sidoti. They really made an awesome team. And then Kate Jetson, who's the executive director at the Center for Integrity of Forensic Sciences, helped with in particular her expertise in shaken baby science and abusive head trauma. Finally, I think... A big part of Lamont's success has been his family, as he's mentioned. I think he has maybe one of the most supportive families that I've ever seen. It's been a a real privilege to have Lamont and his family trust me with his life and with his case, because it's pretty scary, especially when it's so complicated and technical and you don't know what's going on. And they let me into their home to explain things and were patient (laughs) as I explained why we need to be patient and why it takes so long and that kind of thing. So one of the things I talk about, especially when talking to the law students, is about, you know, how to try your best to meet your client where they are. You know, intellectually, emotionally, if you could, because I just had an attorney ask me, you know, after doing the talk up there, she said, what could I do better? I have a kind of a guarded client, you know what I'm saying, that I can't seem to get through to, you know, and he don't trust me. I said, well, my recommendation, this is what worked for me and my family. It might not work for everybody. If you could pinpoint somebody in his family or a trusted uh, friend or something who he listens to. And try to get through to that person and let that person be the liaison or whatever. Maybe you can, you know, get a better working relationship with your client. You know, Aaron took the time, Aaron, Justin, Tia, they took the time to explain the process going forward when Aaron first came on my case, when we first met each other. And it was very effective. I don't know what other attorneys do with their clients, but Aaron took the necessary time, literally explained what to expect going forward and to relay the same information to my family through a liaison, which we chose to be my sister, Debbie, who has been amazing in this process as well as keeping me straight (laughs) when I give Aaron problems and have phone calls and stuff. So it's a whole village, like like, like Aaron just mentioned, on both sides. It's just, it takes a village, man. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kathleen Fink, as well as my fellow executive producers, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardis, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.